Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth. This is Season 6, Episode 5, A Whole New Direction, with Michelle Ruiz Kyle. Michelle is an author known for her critically acclaimed young adult novels, All of Us with Wings and Summer in the City of Roses. She spoke with me about coming into her own as an artist later in life and discovering the importance of being cared for as a creative. She was recently awarded grant funding from the Regional Arts and Culture Council for research around her first novel for adults. The novel features oral history and myths from her Mexican-American family's past in California, where her great-grandparents came to work in the sugar industry during the 1920s and 30s. I hope you enjoy what she has to say about literature and process. Here's Michelle. I'm Michelle Ruiz Kyle, and my pronouns are she, her, and I am a writer and a tarot reader and kind of found writing professionally relatively later in life and um, published my first book in 2019, the year I turned 50. My first book is called All of Us with Wings, and it is a coming-of-age story set in post-punk San Francisco in the late 80s, and it is a story about trauma and healing and about reclaiming power and pleasure after abuse and about found family and also really kind of deeply about a certain time and a certain place. You know, San Francisco is a city that completely changed after technology changed all of our lives. And this is about kind of that moment before in a really powerful and special place. I was born in San Francisco and I love the city very much. So it was sort of a love letter to the city as well. I started writing the book, honestly, as a dare to a bunch of teenagers. A bunch of students at my daughter's school wanted to do NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And I'd never heard of it before. I mean, this was way back in 2008. I have written plays um, and I had a theater space at that time. And so they knew that I had written something before. And they came to me and said, you know, hey, will you basically, will you host us at your house so we can have late night pizza parties and write? And I said, I would. And I said that I would also write a book with them. You know, it's funny because I say that I came to writing late, but my partner was reminding me recently that I've actually been writing ever since he knew me and we met really young. So we were 21 and he said, you know, I'd been really writing since then. And it's really true, but different things, sort of life events happen to sort of get in my writing path and, and change it. But what I realized as I started working on my book and then later after it was published was that all the things that I had done in my life, whether they were big mistakes at the time or, you know, choices that I really consciously made were all, were all the preparation that I needed, like the perfect education actually for writing my specific books. That sort of set me off on a whole new direction and a whole new life, really. I had no idea about anything about publication. I was a reader, a passionate reader with no knowledge of publication. I had once submitted a story back in the days where you mailed them in, in the mail 
to a Glimmer Train, which is a, a, a now now closed literary magazine, um, to a contest for them, and I had got an honorable mention in the contest. But then, you know, I had my first kid, and life went on, and I sort of didn't go back in that direction. Publication was like the farthest thing from my mind when I started writing the book. I just wanted to do it for fun. And once I started to think that maybe it was going to be a thing, luckily I have a friend, my best friend, who is the poet MK Chavez, who always goes before me and does the thing. And then I can see how I could do the thing. It's kind of amazing having a friend like that. And she started, had started, you know, reading her poetry publicly and then publishing her poetry. And she told me that, you know, there were these juried fiction workshops that you could get into if you applied for them and that, you know, you'd be publishing people and it would be a way to sort of learn more. And so I thought that there'd be no way I could get in, but I applied for some things and I got in. I attended a workshop at the Community of Writers and also one at Lit Camp in the Bay Area and really started to, you know, meet agents, meet editors and understand how the business worked. And uh, with my first book, it was really hard because I didn't know what age range it was for. It's sort of a liminal book in that it's not fantasy, but it's got magic realism in it, but it's really grounded in sort of reality in a certain way until it isn't. And then it's also um, a coming of age story with a 17 year old main character and then secondary, really strong point of view, secondary characters that are, you know, one is a 12 year old girl, several are people in their late twenties and one is an elder cat, actually point of view character. And so it was, it had sort of all of these different elements that I wasn't sure how to find a fit for it. I figured out, you know, how to query agents. I decided I wanted to try to be traditionally published, started off querying the book as a young adult book. And didn't really get much response. Got a few responses from agents who said, I really like this, but I don't think I can sell it. I don't think it's YA. I think you should create agents who rep adult. And so I took that advice and pretty quickly after that got my agent and found an editor who wanted to acquire it as an adult title. And a little twist came when her publishing team came back and said, yeah, we want to take it, but we want to put it out through our young adult imprint. And we don't want to change it. And you can still edit it, even though you're not a young adult editor, but we think it could be a really great story for YA. I invested all of this sort of energy into making connections and meeting people in the adult publishing world. And I had no clue about the YA world whatsoever. And it was really a little bit on the edge for YA. You know, some readers definitely felt like it should not have been YA, but it was very well received critically, which was exciting and terrifying at the time because it definitely pushed boundaries in YA, just even simple things like in young adult, there are no adult point of view characters. That's kind of a rule. And in my book, there were several adult point of view characters, you know, just little things like that down to like some, you know, somewhat controversial subject matter in places. So it was, it was a definite, it was an adventure all of a sudden kind of going into this new world with these new constraints, but my publisher really stood behind me. That made it very worth it. My editor and I, you know, we, we went through something big together the my contract for that book included an option for a second book which means you know running it past them first before i try to take it out to anyone else to buy my next book and because we had such a good time together i was able to submit a novel on proposal which means i didn't have to write the whole next book i just had to write sort of like some sample pages like I had 50 pages and a synopsis that actually ended up being almost completely thrown out but 
you know, basically what I knew is that my editor wanted to basically work with me again for the next book, no matter what. So this one was a purposeful YA and the title, which we finally got to at the very last minute is Summer in the City of Roses. And that came out last summer. And then the paperback is going to come out in July, in June, late June. That book was meant to be YA and it's set in Portland in the early nineties. And it's about a brother and sister who are from a very, very close family whose mother goes away to an artist residency for a month and leaves the dad in charge without that glue and routine that kept their family in the shape that it was in. Everything sort of explodes and both of the kids find themselves on their own in early 90s Portland, um, trying to find each other and finding themselves along the way. That one is very much based in the fairy tale Brother and Sister. It's a grim fairy tale that's sort of kind of a um, Hansel and Gretel story. And also in mythology about Iphigenia and Orestes from Greek mythology. Yeah, that book was really fun to write. I don't think I ever would have written it if the first book hadn't been YA. So I I really wouldn't, I don't think I would have tried to find a YA idea. And I think I would have missed this book altogether. And I'm really glad I didn't. It's been a really amazing gift to be able to do it. It was awesome because I was like, whoa, I can just sell this book without even writing a book. This is great. But then like halfway through, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, like I was kind of stuck and and I was feeling uninspired and I was exhausted. I had no, I, I didn't understand what it would be like. Luckily past me had applied for a residency that I thought future me would really need. And I got it. So I was able to go to a residency at Hedgebrook right before my book was due and I had only had it half written. And somehow, I don't know, like folding space time, something I was able to finish when I was at the residency and kind of, you know, just with the internet making application accessible, it's so many people apply and it just, you just got to go over and over again. And it it was like, it kind of spoils you for anything else because, you know, you have this perfect little hobbit cottage and beautiful chef prepared meals every single night and they leave you a little lunch. And, you know, it's just like, there's this idea that many women and female identifying people do a lot of caretaking in their lives and that they just don't want you to have to think about any of that when you're there. For me in my life, that's really true. So it was just like, what? I can just write. And I really needed it right then too. And it's kind of funny because the magic of the Hedgebrook Cottage, there's a magical house in the forest in Summer in the City of Roses. The women that I was there with read the book and they're like, oh my God, it's, it's our cottage. Like I see it, you know, definitely infused the book keep applying and actually apply to so many that you forgot you applied to them. Because then if you get an email saying that you didn't get it, it's like, okay, oh yeah, right. I applied for that thing, you know? And then if you did get it, it's like, oh my God, what a cool surprise. But I do think that the more you apply, the better you get at applying. And really what it is, is it's really hard to articulate your work, like what you're doing with your work. And I think that when I finally began to really nail it with what I wanted to do with my work and what I'm sort of attempting, what my project sort of is, my overall project as as a writer, that seemed to really help. And I've had a lot of success in the last couple of years. I'm going next week to a residency at Bloedel Reserve. And I did one at Sitka this year too. So it's like all of a sudden my applying mojo just kicked in. But I really think it's about learning how to articulate what you're doing. And also too, like thinking about where you're applying to, like a friend of mine is a reader for a residency and, you know, recently read applications and so many people didn't tailor their application to what the residency is about. 
you know, so like for me, if I'm applying to something that has a really strong nature element, I will talk about my work with fairy tale and my, my work with the metaphor of the forest, which I work with all the time. And so I can connect with sort of a place that has a really strong interest in nature writing through a different angle. So just like really trying to figure out what their focus is, and then to try to find a way that your work connects with their focus. I think that's another thing that can be really helpful. Also for this grant, particularly, there was an offering that you could um, have your application reviewed and you can get support that way because I had never applied for a grant before. And I actually did that. And I'm so glad I did because I took the advice I got and I think it made my application a lot stronger. I know like with this grant, there were a few questions that I thought I understood what they were asking, but I actually did not understand. I got the feedback of like, oh yeah, this is a good answer. But the question is actually this. I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. Honestly, it's like learning a whole nother language. And that starts from the beginning though. Like when you're trying to get an agent, you have to talk about your book in a paragraph. Lately, I've been trying to teach myself screenwriting and TV writing, and you've got to do a logline that's like 50 words. It's really trippy because you don't even use like pronouns. It's just like, you know, a 17 year old alone in San Francisco running from a painful past, you know, like you just have to make it sort of archetypal imagery, but something that's vivid enough to be seen when you read a sentence, you can sort of see what it might be like. Every single word counts. And maybe poets, I think, are more used to having to like really focus on every word. But it's a good reminder because why why waste a word? Why not use the best word you can use? But that kind of exercise is helpful, I think, for all these kinds of applications and things, just learning how to distill your work and talk about it. So this project is something I've been thinking about for a really long time. My dad's side of the family, my great-grandfather, so his grandfather, came over from Mexico and was working, doing agricultural work in Redlands, where my great-grandmother's family had lived for a couple generations. So I think we've been in California for many generations. But anyway, they met and fell in love, and he got a job at the C&H Sugar Refinery in Crockett, California. And so Crockett is a tiny, teeny little town in the Bay Area. It's actually really close to San Francisco. You can kind of get on a ferry from close to there over to the city. But because it's like right on the water on the bay, it was like this perfect thing where sugarcane grown in Hawaii would come over to the um, refinery. And so CNH is California, Hawaii sugar. And, you know, you'll recognize it. It's that pink and white box. And, you know, they had ads on when I was a kid. It was, you know, this whole thing, this kind of iconic American product. And so they worked there and lived in this town. Uh, CNH provided housing and I think provided even like mortgages for their employees. So it was really a company town. And my Nana, my dad's mom, who I was very close to, always talked about her like idyllic childhood in Crockett and, you know, how it was such a small town, you could walk to everything. So I always kind of had an idea about that as like an amazing setting for a story, because even though she had this idyllic experience there, I kept thinking too, like about the sugar industry as being such a vehicle for colonialism for having its, you know, roots in slavery and, you know, a lot of indentured labor, but how it really, especially with California, really built the state. And then, of course, in Hawaii, the working conditions on the plantations were just terrible. And so much so that even many Native Hawaiians wouldn't do the work. And so other marginalized people from other places um, in Asia and in the Philippines, in Japan, in China were brought to um, Hawaii. So I was just thinking about all of this. And then also um, my grandfather was a merchant seaman and he died very young, as did my dad. And there's this sort of haunted history of these really brilliant young men 
who did these very adventurous professions. My dad was a firefighter, his dad, you know, merchant seaman and dying young. There was also something about identity and this sense of not knowing how to find one's identity. I myself have had an experience of being either in a situation where I'm one of the only people of color and having people sort of will kind of be colorblind, like, oh, I don't see you're Mexican. I don't see you as Mexican. You know, that sort of weird erasure and kind of unintentional racism when I was a kid. And then also this experience of being claimed by lots of different people. So when I worked with indigenous youth, a lot of folks thought that I was also indigenous and um, I probably do have indigenous history, but I am, you know, unaware of it. It is lost to my family, um, you know, those connections, you know, being, being sort of claimed by lots of different groups of people because I look sort of ambiguous. Like I could be part Japanese, I could be Filipina, I could be, you know, and in reality, I'm Mexican and Colombian and lots of different kinds of European and possibly some indigenous lost history on my grandmother's side. This sort of placelessness has fascinated me as well. So there's also this like kind of hidden queer history in my family and also in the Bay Area that I'm really interested in. So the 30s was a really interesting time to be a queer person in San Francisco. There were tons of clubs for gay women, for one thing. Male impersonators was the thing where these really beautiful, you know, butch women would be these stars, these, you know, singers. There was a story that my Nana always told me, and apparently I'm the only one she told it to, which I thought was kind of interesting, where when she was, I think, either newly married or, you know, engaged, my grandfather took her to the Black Cat Club. And the Black Cat is infamous as a gay club in North Beach. And she told me about going into the bathroom and seeing this very beautiful young man in the bat in the ladies room, you know, and being like, what's going on? And then realizing that, oh, there was more than met the eye in this club. And she always had such a twinkle when she talked about the place. But then there, like, that was all that was said. There, there's also, you know, another member of my family in her of her generation who actually came out and got married to her partner. The first time marriage was gay marriage was legal in California. And so all of these sort of little threads of my family history kind of come together and so really the story is about this young woman named B who's madly in love with her husband, Max, who takes her to the Black Cat Club and they both discover this other part of themselves in this environment where things are like loose. That's that's kind of how B sees it. They begin this great romance within their new marriage, but then reality kind of kicks in and he starts to have to go out to sea because he's a merchant seaman. She gets pregnant has a child. He's got some mental health issues that also were, I think, a part of my Nana's story with her first husband, which was very difficult and very painful. You know, he died at 30. So my character also dies young. And, you know, this young woman is left with one child. Um, My Nana was left with, with three. And this sort of mysterious husband who she was just beginning to understand. Then the subculture we also get to kind of explore is the spiritualist and kind of occult subculture that was also really happening in the 30s, kind of everywhere. But in San Francisco, there were some very interesting permutations of it. So there's like kind of a million things to research, a lot of rabbit holes to go down. I kind of narrowed it a little bit to talk about it for my grant, because what I really first need to do is just go home to the Bay Area and my great aunt 
aunt is still living and she's an amateur genealogist. So she's done all this research on the family and um, we're going to go visit and hang out in Crockett together. And she's going to show me the places where they lived. Then I'm going to do some research also in San Francisco. With both of my books, I've gotten letters from people who have said, this is the first time I've ever felt seen. And in lots of different ways, right? Like people who said like, oh, you know, I'm a person of color who, you know, was in the punk scene. And, you know, whenever I read a story about the punk scene, it's always about white kids. Well, kids of color were there too. Or even something like I had a complicated path to healing from abuse. And I have not really seen that story told in this way before. And it's been very healing for me. You know, and also about my most recent book, which is set in Portland, I think it's really valuable to sort of have another layer, another record of what things were like in Portland in the early 90s. Because I think that right now it's so easy to feel beleaguered and frustrated and worried because this has been such a hard year for everyone, a hard few years. I myself, as a person of color, can have a lot of complicated feelings about being in Portland. But I started to remember the things that made me fall in love with Portland in the beginning. Beginning. And I think that, you know, being able to write a novel about that time in that space, the, the book being there, being able to go into Powell's and be like, I want a book about Portland and being able to find a book that talks about all the ways that the city is full of people of color, is full of queer people, how marginalized people have come together to make social movements that have made a huge difference, a very tiny thing that's in uh, Summer in the City of Roses is based on someone that I know, Teresa Dulce, who was an activist in early 90s Portland, who basically really started needle exchange in Portland. Her program was just done with a backpack walking up and down 82nd, giving women who were drug addicted an opportunity to make you know, healthy choices for themselves by using clean needles and having access to health materials and condoms. That became a program that the city actually adopted. And I mean, I know programs like that are even can be controversial, but I truly believe that our city is like a million times better for that. And just to be able to look back and say like, oh, just like some young woman who was a sex worker who saw a problem went and like did this. Artists and writers can capture histories that may not be obvious when you're just sort of looking or reading the news or whatever. And also, you know, I've done a lot of work with youth and I cannot tell you how inspiring it is for you to see someone like me. I was a high school dropout. I didn't go to college until later when I already was a mom. You know, I've had kind of a circuitous route to this work that I'm doing now as a writer. And I think that artists especially artists from marginalized communities with stories like mine can really be inspiring to youth who also aren't being able to kind of find that straight path of like a really good college and an MFA and, or can inspire kids to actually take that path too. So yeah, I think there's a lot of importance to funding art. My website is just uh, michellerumiskyle.com. And I actually, you can message me through my website and I answer all the messages, especially if other writers or artists have questions about, you know, how to publish their work, how to get in the industry, anything like that. I really want to be open and available for that. You know, you can find my books kind of anywhere. They're at the library. They're available at all the, all the bookstores in town. But yeah, if you have questions about writing in any way, you know, I'm always kind of around and try to answer those. You can find me mostly on Instagram, on social media at Michelle Ruiz Kyle. Thanks so much for listening. 
This episode was sponsored by Oregon Humanities and the Oregon Community Foundation. Written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Ellie Swope. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we're happy to hear it. Please feel free to reach out at any time at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie.